recently, it was my pleasure to record a crossover podcast with worshipful brother Michael Arce of the excellent Craftsman Online podcast. We had a lot of fun doing it, and I'm pleased to share it here with my listeners on You've Been Hanged. Michael's podcast is a good place to hear many worthwhile Masonic voices. Incidentally, Michael and I also participated together in the recording of A Christmas Carol, heard here in December, as well as on the excellent Scottish Rite podcast. I'll include a link to Michael's wonderful Craftsman Online for those of you who subscribe to my email newsletter. Much love. Hank, you've been hanked. The comments, opinions, and views shared during this program are of those individual Freemasons and do not reflect the official position of a Grand Lodge, Concordant Body, Appendant Body, Masonic Authority, or CraftsmanOnline.com. Welcome to the Craftsman Online Podcast, the only five-star rated Masonic podcast endorsed by the Grand Lodge of New York. And now your host, worshipful brother, Michael Arce. You've joined us for an episode on You've Been Hanked, as we do a crossover with worshipful brother Hank Griffin, the host of the You've Been Hanked podcast. Welcome to the Craftsman Online podcast, Brother Hank. Hey, Michael. Thank you very much for having me. What a, what a pleasure to be here. I really enjoy your the work that you're doing at Craftsman Online. You've Been Hanked uh, is on Apple Podcasts and a lot of other places that you will find your favorite podcasts. He's a writer. He's a storyteller. He's a Latter-day Saint, Freemason, family man, community builder, Parkinson's warrior. This is all coming from his bio and, of course, a force of nature. I became a fan of the You've Been Hanked podcast after Brother Maynard from the Tyler's Place podcast shared your show with me. And throughout this episode, we're going to be inserting some clips of your podcast. I'd like to get started with the story behind You've Been Hanked. What does that mean? And what was your inspiration for doing your podcast? My bride, I don't remember exactly what had happened, but I was teasing my son. We have a a 10-year-old boy. I don't recall exactly what the details were, but I was teasing him in the way that dads do with their boys, and something about it struck her as funny, and she just looked over at him, and of course, my name is Hank. I go by Hank. People call me Hank, and she said, son, you've been Hank, and it it sort of became a recurring bit around our house, and I started thinking seriously about a podcast. People have been suggesting it to me for a long time, and I didn't really know how to get started. I didn't know anything about it, but I got to thinking about it and thought, well, maybe I'll do it. And I started talking to some friends of mine about exactly how to go about it. And then I started thinking about a name and you've been hanked, got thrown in the mix. It never occurred to me it would actually stick, but everybody liked it. And so here we are. Like so much else, it comes from my wife. Here's what's cool about your podcast. If if our listener, if you're a fan of podcasts in general, uh, you're well aware there's different styles. And here on the Craftsman Online podcast, our guests are always the highlight. And nobody tunes in to listen to me. Um, I find other brothers in the craft and the work that they do to be inspiring and uplifting. And I like to, you know, create this space for them to share their stories. Your podcast, a much different approach. If you're a fan of storytelling, and I think some of the compliments that we could uh, praise you with would be kind of a prairie home companion. It's, uh, it, it takes you back to Paul Harvey almost with the storytelling. But you talk about your life and you also talk about this special place called beautiful Texas 
And throughout that, you weave in, if you're a Freemason, you will hear him weave in some of our morals, some of our values, our principles. You do talk about being a Freemason. You talk about being a man of faith, but you also talk about just your life. Where did you get the inspiration to do that? Is this basically your audio book that you're telling, or are you going to be taking these episodes and writing them into maybe a real book? I've written three real books already, but I, I don't even try to get them. They're for my kids. Used to, writing was a big thing, but we don't read the way that we used to. I was watching Joe Rogan earlier, and bless his heart, he had a single episode that reached 56 million people on YouTube. Never mind what he's done on Spotify. Never mind. That was just a single episode of YouTube. 56 million people. You're not going to sell 56 million books un un unless you're an outlier that is you're going to win the lottery and be struck by lightning bolts several times before. And so I think that this is the better way for me to go. This is where I can reach the people that I want to reach and who want to be reached. That Friday afternoon, I arrived home from school troubled by the presentation I'd just sat through. When I stepped off the bus, there was Uncle Carl waiting at the mailbox to walk me home as he was so kind to do every school day. His cool menthol 120 was all but burned out. This being the case, he paused. As the school bus drove away, that good old man took a fresh cigarette from the pack that was always in his shirt pocket, removed the failing cigarette from his mouth, replaced it with the fresh one, used the fading ember of the one to light the other, inhaled a double lung full of smoke, exhaled a great cloud of it, and said, how was school today? Newly armed with the knowledge that my great-uncle Carl, a man dear to me in a way that few other of God's children were, was surely about to drop dead from his filthy habit, I launched into a lecture on the evil dangers of smoking that I'd learned only a couple hours ago from the woman who told us all about it while she smoked several lucky strikes. I told Uncle Carl all about cancer, heart disease, high blood pressure, and the cross-section model of ruined lungs we'd been shown at school that day. My good uncle never interrupted. He waited patiently until, eventually, I'd both run out of things to say and was forced to take a breath. They told you all that stuff at school today, he asked. Yes, sir, I said. Uh-huh. We walked a few yards more as Uncle Carl drew in a breath of smoke, then exhaled it. Have they ever told you kids about the Nazis? I feel like you're, you're, you're doing that Bob Ross trick to us where every week we would tune into Bob Ross and he was painting all those wonderful pictures. And then I saw it on TikTok, they laid it over and he was actually painting a story of a scene. What's the story that you're telling about beautiful Texas? Texas is wonderful, but, but what's really beautiful is beautiful East Texas. That's, that's where the magic is. That's where the, uh, that's where the stories happen. And as far as the story that I'm trying to tell, it's not so much about beautiful East Texas as much as it is what, what happened there. When I was a, a kid, East Texas had been left behind economically. Uh, the, the Rural Electrification Corporation had only just before I was born even finished. Now, my grandparents didn't get, didn't get a, a phone hardwired, in, hardwired into their home until late 60s. You know, I, I was born in 71. They, they didn't get electricity 
until the early, late 50s, early 60s, it was left behind economically. And so you think about going back in time 40 years. But, but in reality, what's, what, what really is more honest is to recognize that while we temporarily are going back in for the, for the setting of the story that far, once you've gotten there, what you have actually done is, is gone back in some cases a century. My, I talk about my Uncle Carl a lot. He did have electricity in his home, but he didn't have any plumbing. There was no hot and cold indoor running water. He caught his, uh, his, his drinking water in two stainless steel 55-gallon drums from the, from the roof. He had a, a, a 22-foot well, one of those six-inch uh, across wells that, you know, on a really good year, you, you could get maybe four gallons of water out of it um, in the morning and another. And they were, it was hard, bitter, bitter water. Yes, he had electricity. He had, he had a bare hanging bulb in uh, two of it or three of his four rooms in his home. And uh, he had an outhouse and, and he, he was a, an old cotton farmer, served his country in the Second World War, lived through the Dust Bowl, was, a, was an actual witness to the Dust Bowl. And he liked to tell his family stories. And he was the only one left that had them. And had it not been for him and had he not passed them on, they would all be gone. My younger brothers and I loved to listen to the old man tell his tales. Uncle Carl was painfully shy in front of most people, but if it were just us boys there, we knew he couldn't deny us a story if we asked for it. As this one fell under the heading of important family history, we knew our well-loved great-uncle would eventually give in. We had hard times then. The Great Depression was on, and to make it worse, we had the Dust Bowl to deal with. Dad was, he was pretty smart. And every year when the cotton crop came in, Dad planted a crop of peas over the ground. One of the younger boys asked, why'd he do that? And the Dust Bowl was terrible, the old man said. Every year it stripped more of the topsoil away from the land. With each passing year, there was less farmland to grow crops of any kind. More and more families, friends that we'd known a long time, People we'd been farming that part of Oklahoma with for years and years moved away. Dad planted peas as a cover crop. What's a cover crop? Our youngest brother wanted to know. A cover crop, something that helps to keep the soil in place so that it won't blow away in the wind. You plant it so the ground isn't bare after your main crop is harvested. Men from the government used to come and talk to the farmers about how to preserve the land. Some of it was helpful. Most of it wasn't. Dad did his best. Did it help? I asked. Yeah, for a while. Trouble was, so many of the farms in the area were lost. The damage was so severe that even though our land was in better shape than most, being surrounded by hungry, growing desert means that our farm was eventually going to be lost too. Finally, the year came there was nothing more that we could do. The farm could no longer produce crops. We had to move or starve. Where'd you go? One of the boys asked. California, Uncle Carl said. California? Why? There's an opportunity to work there, and we had family in California. There were so many people out of work from the Depression, and so many farmers lost their farms because of the Dust Bowl. It was important to try to go somewhere that work could be had. Listening to the old man, I had a strong sense of the loss that he felt. The family had lost the only way of life they'd ever known in his lifetime. 
farm was consumed by the Dust Bowl. No cotton could be grown there. Hunger was, for the first time, a real threat. So long as the farm continued to be viable, Uncle Carl's family could grow and raise food. They might not have proper shoes and clothes or luxuries of any kind, but they, they ate pretty well at a time when far too many were going hungry. Sitting there on our great-uncle's dry, bare wood back porch, listening to the spell of his story, our family story, I felt a sense of gravity. Radio and podcasting is theater of the mind, right? So you hear something and you close your eyes and you're instantly transported somewhere. And because it is an individual experience, we all feel it differently. It was so crazy when you said you were born in 71. I was born in 78. So you're a kid of the 70s and 80s, and I'm a kid of the 80s and 90s, just based on that little difference of a span there, that about eight, nine-year span. But hearing your stories of beautiful East Texas, it does sound very John Steinbecky, Grapes of Wrath, like 30s, 40s, Dust Bowl era. And it's interesting when you talk about that it's left behind because in a recent episode, you talked about getting your first job. And the way that you talk about everybody knowing everybody, it's that small town value that sometimes those of us in big cities, we forget how, quote unquote, simple life can be in other places. The way that I use it in my storytelling, beautiful is maybe... Maybe it's better described as a series of places, a geography. The little town that I grew up in, which you will occasionally hear me talk about the heart of beautiful. And if I am talking about the heart of beautiful, that is that little town. That That's where I grew up. That's where I went to school. That's, that's where all my first gloves were and and first fights and, and, and all those um, delightful things that, that we remember. In those days, when you come into town, there's, there's a population sign. Welcome to beautiful East Texas population 813 and, and that that was the that was the county seat so that was the big town there was a piggly wiggly there for example and uh there, there was a four-way stop with a flashing light i'm 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 being serious there was uh there, i don't think there were any stoplights but but there was that uh four-way stop and 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 the courthouse was there and then when you would go out the the little town nearest there was a a little a little general store with a single gas pump. Uh, there was a, a schoolhouse. You know, the graduating class would have been about five kids, and they'd have two grade levels in each classroom. Each teacher would be responsible for two grade levels, and there'd be four kids in kindergarten and seven kids in first grade kind of thing. And it was a very wonderful, rural, delightful setting where everybody really did know everybody, but, but more importantly, they knew your mama. And if you were not doing things the way they thought you ought to be your mama was going to know before you ever got home and uh and she might depending on your mom would be cheering you on or you might be getting a spanking when you got home but either way everybody knew your mama so he's right worshipful brother Hank Griffin. Uh, he's the Grand Chaplain in Maryland, the, the Grand Jurisdiction Grand Lodge of Maryland. And when you talk about beautiful, it's a region, it's a place, but beauty is also something as Freemasons that, you know, our listeners in the know will be like, aha. And when I hear you talk about beautiful and the beauty that is in life, that is what I think of. How has your definition of beauty maybe evolved with a little bit of that Masonic connection. Wisdom, strength, and beauty, right? When we think of beauty, Masonically, we know that it is 
Uh, it is a reference to youth. It is a reference to the vigor that comes therefrom. There are layers to my understanding of beauty. And this is certainly one of them. In my faith, uh, and I, I don't want to jump ahead, Brother Michael, I, I'm not trying to jump around, but I, but I do want to give you, a, a, I want to reveal just a little more of the onion. Masonically, that state that we are in as men who still lack experience, having, on, having an opportunity to gain it from those who are stronger and wiser, youth, strength, and, and wisdom, men who are stronger than we are, more able than we are, wiser than we are, whose, um, whose ability to orchestrate things, whose ability to carry those plans out is, is more advanced than our own. And, and then in my faith, there's references to beauty. There's this hymn, the, uh, Beauty All Around When There's Love at Home. And there's this idea, there's this discussion in this hymn or an explanation in this hymn about our, the state of our lives. And I find that those two relate very well because you think about that young man in masonry and that that young man of faith or that young man of no faith at all. It really doesn't matter who is a good man striving to become a better man. And in his relationships, there's no better place to exercise those things than in our personal relationships. You, You Whoever you love in your home, your spouse and your children or your dog or your cat, it doesn't matter. When when there is love in those relationships, there's beauty all around. You walk around and you can't help but, my goodness, the sun is so beautifully bright. And look at the green in those leaves. And I don't think I've ever seen a more beautifully yellow daffodil. Look at the, look at the hue of that rose. Life is beautiful especially in those early youthful stages when love can be so impactful. Certainly, I'm in my 50s. I love my bride more than I've ever. We're going to celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary. Now, I've never loved her more than I do now, but that, but that love is the love of 20 years and not of 20 weeks. And, and it's, it's more mature. It's different. It's not lesser. It's not greater. It's simply different. But that young man, that young mason who if he is wise and recognizes the value of his relationships in his home and and in all that he does, he can't help but see a beautiful world all around him. And if he chooses to have a beautiful spirit, and it is a choice, it is a choice. A lot of the stories that you hear me tell about beautiful East Texas happened in my youth. We're talking with Right Worshipful Brother Hank Griffin, the host of the You've Been Hank podcast. And as you scroll through the catalog on Apple Podcasts, uh, there was one title that caught my eye. It actually, I remember I was taking a sip of coffee at work and almost did a spit take. Um, The title of the episode is, I'm not drunk, I have Parkinson's. Two weeks before listening to your podcast, I had watched the Michael J. Fox movie still on Apple TV, where he is also a Parkinson's warrior. And it was just really a a bittersweet episode to hear you talk about your experience with Parkinson's, but do it in a Hank way. Last evening, the officers of the Grand Lodge gathered to rehearse for an important event to be held in the coming days. After our practice was finished, some of us decided to gather for just a bit at a nearby restaurant, the Green Frog Cafe. While at the Green Frog Cafe, we enjoyed one another's company and good fellowship. At the counter, I tried at first to order Diet Dr. Pepper. That's my sugar-free beverage of choice. Sadly, there was no Diet Dr. Pepper to be had. 
Well, what else do you have? Diet Coke? Oh, no. How about a cherry Coke? Regular, not diet. Please, just, just regular. The woman disappeared for several minutes. While she was gone, I saw myself in the mirror. My medicine had mostly worn off by then. My head nodded vigorously. I stared and couldn't help but feel aghast. Good grief, I thought. Is that really what I look like now? It was not my physical appearance that troubled me. Happily, I'm still a moderately handsome old devil. I'm not trying to be indiscreet, but we all play in the cards we've been dealt. Rather, it was the uncontrollable and wildly exaggerated nodding of my head that concerned me. Yes, I feel it happening most days, but to see it as it was happening and the degree to which it was happening was, it was disquieting. I was relieved when the woman reappeared with the cherry coke in her hand. Having taken possession of it, I joined my brethren and tried not to think about what I saw in the mirror. I spent a half hour there fellowshipping with my brother Grand Lodge officers, who are also my friends. Then, feeling it was time to leave, I shook hands with everyone and excused myself. As I began to go, a brother, of whom I'm particularly fond, stopped me and whispered, Hank, are you okay to drive? I looked at him and saw real concern in his eyes. <laughs> my brother, I said, are you worried that cherry coke I had might have pushed me over the edge? On the way out, I realized this was twice now. I've been confused for someone who may have consumed too much alcohol in the last two evenings in a row. I'm thinking about acquiring a T-shirt or a hat or some nifty sort of sign to the effect, I'm not drunk, y'all. I just had Parkinson's. But it was it was so generous, and it was a real demonstration of brotherly love and affection. They did not want me. If there were any reason to be concerned, they were concerned, and they did not want me to uh, do something that 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 could potentially be catastrophic to me and who knows who else. I did that episode because I chuckled so often over that and for a while I was a little bit frustrated but but mostly just appreciative of the loving kindness that was that was demonstrated to me then and I thought you know let me let me write this down let me write this down and, and then it turned in I thought about doing it as sort of a Facebook post and then it turned into much more than that and I thought no no this is um, somebody's gonna be hanged <laughs> I like that. Well, you, you've talked about one of my favorite parts of Freemasonry, and that's the brotherhood. And um, when we talk about brotherly love as you know one of our principal tenets, you're like, oh, that's great. And then you get into Freemasonry, you're like, okay, I get to address these guys as brother. Um, I've told this story before. My son ultimately confused when I first was obligated as a Mason and I saw a Masonic brother in the supermarket. And I was like, hey, brother RJ, how's it going? And my son looks up at me and I'm like... <laughs> That's not that man's not my brother. Yes, uh, Uncle David is the only brother that I have. Um, but that's my Masonic. You know, trying to explain that to at the time, like an eight year old, he was very confused. Lots of questions. Um, but we do have that, and uh, it, it, like I said, it's one of my favorite parts of our ancient and gentle craft. How have the brethren of your lodge and obviously of your jurisdiction? How have they really enhanced your experience as a Freemason? When I came to Maryland from Texas. I waited two years before I did anything Masonically so far as joining. And I, jo I joined the Scottish Rite. I wasn't very active. I had things going on. I wasn't very active. Uh, lots of work, lots of school. 
when I got to the point where I could be more active, a lot of time had passed and I had gone to some lodges. I'd, I'd visited a, a, a few lodges, but I wasn't known. Nobody really knew me. And I thought, you know, I, I think I want to be a, a knight Templar. I'm a member of the Scottish I want to be a knight Templar. Um, let me find out where those guys meet. A lot of those guys at the Blue Lodge were also part of the York Rite, and I sort of fell in with them. And after about a year of, of being there, they said, why are you joining the Lodge? What, what is this? Where, where are you a member? I'm a lifetime member in Texas. And well, what lodge? Well, beautiful lodge number one. What lodge? You know, what does it matter? And they said, well, but you're in Maryland and you need to. Yeah, all, all right. I actually do like these guys quite a bit. And uh, next thing you know, I affiliated and and all of a sudden. I had a Masonic community. Uh, they asked me, well, would you take a seat? And yeah, all right. I'll... Oh, they got you. <laughs> <laughs> there's some shifty devils. Is, and, and I mean that in the kindest, most brotherly way, but there's some shifty old devils. And as soon as they say the words, will you take a seat? I, I, yeah, they, they get you. One, one of the guys had some trouble and, and he, he was not able to continue in the in the East. And I think it was April, late, certainly late March, if not April. And he said, Brother Hank, um, would you consider certifying to serve in the East? Now, I don't know about where where you are, but in Maryland, it is hard to certify. You have to do you have to do a, a great deal of, of work. You have to memorize the the whole blue book. You have to uh, you, you have to know the first, second, and third degree word word for word in in its entirety. Because not only do you have to be able to say your part, but you have to be able then to coach and train and teach other people to to do their part and and create a, a, a circumstance where you're able to to impart a meaningful initiatory experience when when the time comes and then you also have to know the constitution and and the memorial service and all the things that we do you have to know it all and i'm not somebody that uh can just walk in and say i'm ready how have the brothers of my lodge impacted my life well here it is there were two of them in the lodge there brother carl and brother ken who met with me every off Thursday. We meet on Thursdays, and they would meet with me every single off Thursday, no matter what was going on. They Symbolically, they, put the, they lifted me up on their shoulders, and they carried me from the west to the east. I mean, they carried me. That's, that's not to say I didn't do the work. I did, but I could not have done it by myself. And that's one of the things, you know, in masonry, we, we have, and this is the gospel according to Hank, but I, am of the view that we have what is one of the few remaining paths to mortal enlightenment. This doesn't have anything to do with our salvation. That happens at church. But but there's a path to mortal enlightenment, becoming more than, than we could be, that I, I don't think that we have the capacity to do by ourselves. You need somebody who has been down a road or, or is ahead of you in in that process that, that can then help you along, you need to have somebody that's willing to do that for you. You need to be willing to accept it. And then you're not done. If you really want that enlightenment to occur for you personally, you need to then start looking back behind you, seeing who you can help along. That's how they've affected me. It's made my life better. It's I have friendships, community, and brotherhood that were absent before that. I want to close out our time together with uh, a recent episode that I caught where it brought a smile to my face because, again, it was one of those where I felt like I was there. I could just close my eyes, and I was standing watching this movie play out in my head. Uh, Cafe Beautiful. 
Mm. Where you talk about getting your first job. And actually, the funny thing is getting told to get your first job. Bless her. Mama was a stay-at-home mom. She had an eighth-grade education and no marketable skills. When I say we struggled, even suffered, that isn't for dramatic effect. Life was damn difficult in those days. September 86. Mama, no doubt at her wit's end, arrived home to find me laying on the living room floor. I like to do my homework there. When she walked in, she didn't see a studious kid doing his homework. No, she saw a half-grown great big boy laying around eating her out of groceries and sort of snapped. Get up off that floor and get a job. I just turned 15, was stronger than the average lad, liked to work, had a will and heart, but this was the first conversation that mom and I had had about me looking for work outside of farm work or working around the house. I wasn't a lazy kid, far from it. I told you to get up off that floor. You get out of this house and I'd better not see your face again till you have a job. Well, I was upset. My feelings were hurt. And for me, this came out of nowhere as a boy. I was deeply affected, not in a good way. These several decades later, I understand. Mama was carrying the load all alone and it was just too much. What I find so interesting about your storytelling is that you take us back and you give us that romantic view of what life was like back then. But knowing that you're a father and we talk about times changing and we're in a different place now, how do you share this wisdom with your young son today to shape him to be the man that you know he can become? I do it the way that Uncle Carl used to do it with me. I just tell our family stories, and then I try to throw a little bit of my dad, I call my dad Dub. I try to throw a little bit of Dub the mom in there, and, and, it, and it really just comes down to this. I tell these stories in advance of, of things, and then and we talk about serious things in a father and son kind of way. And then as life unfolds day to day, occasionally I will privately draw his attention to something and say, Remember when we talked about, or do you remember I told you Uncle Carl or Papa Dub or Grandma uh, shared this experience? Do you, you remember that? Yeah, yeah, Dad, I remember that. I said, do you, do you see in this example? How, and sometimes he does. Sometimes he very clearly sees and is able to articulate, and that feels like a win. Anytime that happens, that feels like a win. I hope, Brother Michael, that someday he's going to do likewise. I hope that this legacy that has come to me will pass to him and to my daughter and to my grandchildren, and that they'll likewise have an opportunity to entertain and, and draw tears and, and maybe teach a lesson or two along the way. I, I hope. The podcast is You've Been Hanked, and we visit a place called Beautiful Texas, and I want to thank you for sharing the beauty in your stories because um, for me personally, I, my younger brother, who actually is my brother, <laughs> uh, uh, lives near and I'm able to share those stories of, you know, our childhood and what life was like and the things that I would always try to tell other people that they found no humor or they didn't get the inside part of the story. It's good to have that. And it's so I'm just grateful that you're able to take the lessons of your life and share them with us so that they can help us build what we're trying to do with our lives. So thank you so much, Brother Hank. What a, what a treat to be on your wonderful podcast.
I love the Craftsman Online, and I'm, I've enjoyed the time that we've spent together. Thank you for this. Our guest, worshipful brother, Hank Griffin, on the Craftsman Online podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more, you can tell Siri or Alexa to play the Craftsman Online podcast. We're available on all streaming platforms with new episodes every Monday morning. Until next time, let peace and harmony prevail. Prevail.